I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay, so I can sit out here and waste my life away, drag back home and drown my troubles away. It's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me, people like you. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Oh, it is living in the new world with an old soul. These rich men know the rich men. Lord knows it all. Just wanna have total control. Wanna know what you think. Wanna know what you do. And they don't think you know, but I know that you do. My goodness, folks! How in the world do you interrupt that kind of knowledge? But uh, we've got uh, folks standing by, and that song is beautiful, but folks can get that on YouTube uh, and listen to the whole thing, which I encourage them to do, but they can't get us on YouTube and listen to everything we have to say. So I'm going to jump in on this, and uh, Scorp, we didn't get to you on that that exchange, so uh, your turn, buddy. Jump on it. Oh, thank you. Well, it's amazing that, uh, you know, that song hits such a nerve with Americans, talking about rich men in Northern Virginia, what he was talking about there. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, so my show comes on from uh, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific time, 4 to 6 p.m. Central every Sunday. And, um, you know, my background, really, I, I got into researching this stuff back in 1989 when my grandfather bought me a shortwave radio and gave me a subscription to uh, the Spotlight newspaper. And from there on, I was hooked because I knew something was wrong with the world, and I was really starting to learn things on my own. And I just couldn't stop, and here we are today, still at it. And I've been doing you know, uh, podcasts and shows, I think, for about 10 years now, since about 2010, so I guess that's uh, 13 years. Uh, and um, just uh, you know, my background is in art. I'm a painter, and I've done a bunch of other stuff, owned some small businesses. Uh, but I'm just really, I consider myself a student, and I'm, you know, I've been learning this stuff for a long time. And it seems like the more you learn, the more questions you have. It really is true, that old saying. Oh, very much so. Um, and uh, thank you for uh, telling the folks when they can listen to uh, Mr. Scorpio and the uh, – uh, Scorpio uh, Limited Liability Company. I think that is a great name. I love it. Uh, guys, but here's one of the things I wanted to jump into now that we're in our second hour. And folks, we will not be taking any calls tonight. I should have said that up front. But uh, here is the thing that I think that is very critical. And when was the groundwork laid for all of this? And I think so many times about I refer to him as little Jimmy Madison, and that was because James Madison was about five foot six to five foot seven, had a very squeaky voice, and was sick most of his adult life. And the irony is he lived longer than any of the others we call founding fathers. But anyway, that's irrelevant to this point. But James Madison went into what war does to a society and what war does to a government. And it's just absolutely beautiful because he pinpoints it. 
And he said, war increases the powers of government tenfold. And what it does is it makes the president a king. You ever wonder why we've been at war the majority of our lives? Because no one questions the government because they have the patriotic virus that will not allow them to uh, get by with what they want to get by with, you know, in so many ways. But the other thing I think most people are totally unaware of when they look at it is the majority of people who wrote the U.S. Constitution were lawyers. And the not only that, but the Committee of Style and Arrangement, which altered the Constitution in many ways from what the Committee of the Whole had decided on, including the complete preamble. And so they altered and they added a phrase like Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18, Necessary and Proper Clause, and they did this. But you have to be watch for the subtle wording. Now, let's look. Uh, the one thing that Madison said, which I always loved, was uh, because it's accurate. He said, when a country is involved in war, their liberties are destroyed. And when a country is involved in war, it provides the few the power to control the many. Well, we look at our Constitution and how it took over 13 colonies, and we understand how the few then could control not just the people in Philadelphia, not just the people in Boston, but they could control all 13 states. Well, then we end up morphing this into the United Nations, which means now that a very few people in the United Nations can control the entire planet. And there's things we have to look at here. I think one of the things we have to understand is that when, you know, we have Article 6, Clause 2, which is a supremacy clause. And it states that no matter what the states do, no matter what anybody does, the federal government is supreme. But it also mentions treaties. Now, our treaty is with the United Nations. Now, we say, okay, well, you know, but, you know, uh, if we sign a treaty, it has to be pursuant to the Constitution. Well, yes, it does. But the Constitution has a necessary and proper clause, which means anything the government does is valid. There is no there is no opposing. If they have if they claim an impl- a power by implication, there is nothing you can do in court to stop them. So that was put in there by the lawyers. But the other sneaky thing was is to com- is to prepare a treaty requires two-thirds of this U.S. Sen- the president and two-thirds of the U.S. Senate present, which means Article 2, Section 2, which means that the president can call three senators that he knows will vote with him, or he could just call two if he wanted to. It says the majority of those present. So if he called in one, that would be the majority of those present. And so they can sign treaties which which supersede the Constitution with just two or three people. That was not a mistake. The interjection of that word present, of the senators present, was inserted by Gouverneur Morris of the uh, Committee of Style and Arrangement, which completely changed the whole thing. And I know I've read over that. I read 
the Constitution probably two, three hundred times in my youth and while I was in college. And I didn't see that. I didn't see it. I just thought it meant that of the two thirds of the senators present in the Senate. But no, it just says the president and two thirds of the senators present doesn't stipulate where they have to be. And so that uh, kind of troubled me. So the uh, and then we come up, like I said, with the United Nations. Then in 1950, the wonderful president, Mr. Truman, Harry Truman, the book stops here, states unequivocally to the American public, the Constitution does not give me the right to send troops to Korea, but the United Nations does. Folks, with that statement, we were done. Because what he said is, I no longer need constitutional approval And it says in the Constitution that only Congress can declare war. And there's never been any amendment to that. And you can't amend the Constitution with a law according to Article 7, right? Or Article 5, I'm sorry. You can't amend it. Scorp, your thoughts, buddy? Well, of course, uh, President Truman was the 33rd degree Mason, among other things. And... um, Recognized Israel, I think, like 10 minutes after they declared themselves a nation because he had received a large bribe of about a million dollars or so from a Jewish gangster and may have been under threat as well. Uh, Yeah, so um, it's no surprise that he was actually an internationalist. And I believe that um, uh, it it wasn't called a conflict. It wasn't actually a war. That's the other thing, the way they got around it. It's a conflict. Korean conflict. And yeah. I believe, uh, technically, there was actually no treaty ending the war. Uh, it's actually in limbo to this day, I believe. Yeah, you're right. And uh, what is the ironic feature there is, do we still have U.S. military forces in Korea? Oh, yes, absolutely. Quite a few. <laughs> Very large uh, base there. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is... Here's the thing I don't think people understand is this natural agitation that comes. I promise you, Americans, if we had Russian troops marching up and down our road, driving here, driving there, doing whatever they wanted to, coming in, pushing you around, doing whatever you wanted to, pretty soon there's going to be a great deal of resentment. And I'm going to tell you something, and I'm totally uh, honest and open about this, is the majority of this planet the majority of the color uh, countries in this planet hate us they hate us for our hypocrisy they hate us for what we say as opposed to what we do Stephen, for our freedom mike oh yeah (laughs) sorry buddy uh steven your thoughts i agree sir what if they were chinese in texas how how would people feel then okay what if they were chinese in texas uh you know what that it just we've put ourselves all over the world and uh, they want us off of Okinawa uh, and that they've been there since uh, World War Two. You know, still in Korea, still in Okinawa, are we? I, you know, I believe we've been Guam. Yeah, it just it, it, there's how many bases is too many. You know, well, here's just, the thing, uh, Stephen, I'm sorry for interrupting, buddy, but here's my point. Mm-hmm. What business do we have in anybody else's country to start with? 
Hey, I agree. Amen. I, I, I don't I don't want to do you know when I and I don't don't want all of the bombs having made in America stamped on me that they're they're dropping it's like it, it comes from it's in our name whether we uh, are vote whether we um, voted or not we're allowing it okay it's in our name they're using us I remember seeing this guy that was one of the terror suspects that they were had uh, interrogated in Afghanistan had been released and they you know he's on tour or something he said yeah he used to believe that the American flag uh, stood for freedom and justice around the world before you know just kind of like those boys on our ship anyway yeah go ahead I'm sorry buddy appreciate that and let's uh let's get Mr. Kerry's remarks here well you know Mike by the time my generation x was growing up I mean, a lot of people had been conditioned to see uh, the United States as playing a noble role internationally as the uh, so-called international policeman. And uh, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but always believing that, that there could be no corruption uh, you know, in the leadership in this country, not in our country, because, you know, of American exceptionalism, of course. So... You know, yeah, there, there, there's a fascinating naivete. Uh, at the same time, a lot of people who tear down this American exceptionalism or, or, or hyper-patriotism, if you will, tend to resort to the other extreme where it winds up being anti-European and anti-white uh, internationally in the way they look at us and other nations. And, I, you know, there, there's no logical reason to jump to that extreme which is very detrimental and uh and uh, unjust as well and uh, and so you know you 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 have to be wary that both of those are um extremes created by our oppressors you know by the opposition we can't fall in the trap of of either of those extremes in our in our mindset or when fleeing from a one we find distasteful well, I agree with that, Richard, uh, certainly uh, very much so. Uh, I don't think that the extremes of any position are ever good for the people. Uh, but the thing that uh, troubles me when I look at this is that having traveled, you know, as a U.S. government representative, having traveled to several foreign countries, and having, you know, just open conversations with people a lot of times when they didn't even know who I was or what I was doing. And I remember in, in England one time talking to some folks. And uh, they are totally aware of this country's duplicity. And I think one of the biggest problems that we face is the fact that our people aren't. Our people don't understand or will not accept how duplicious this government has been how we could align ourselves with a dictator who had killed 10 million people. And it was more important to align ourselves with them so that we could go after the person who was opposing the structure. He was opposing what the exactly what we are experiencing today. He was opposing that happening in his country you know did he get a little wacko at the end i think we all do when we think about those situations because i know that at one time thomas jefferson was my favorite if you would 
founding father because of his early works and his early writings because I thought they were just absolutely fantastic. But then when I got into the deeper dive and got into the deeper studies and read some of his letters at the University of Virginia Rotunda and the fact that Jefferson fell victim to what I call Lord Acton virus. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Because uh, Jefferson had done an about-face with his, if you read his early stuff, his early stuff was fantastic. You know, from 18 to like 30 years old, his writings were just fantastic. And then suddenly he became president in 1800, and 1800 to 1804, I believe, is the best four years of any president in America's history. But in eighteen from eighteen oh five on, he went off the he went off the rails, and I think power does that to people. And uh, Scorp, I'd like your comments on that, please, sir. David, you still with us? Oh, I'm sorry, operator error. Okay, uh, understand that real well. Yeah, I, I think that's a good commentary <laughs> about Jefferson. Uh, it's amazing that uh, a man started doing heavy uh, top-shelf writing at age 18. That's an accomplishment in and of itself. Uh, but um, certainly, I'd like to know, too, the people that surrounded Jefferson beginning in 1805, what kind of influence he may have been under in terms of the people around him. That'd be interesting to, to delve into. Well, let's not forget that in 1784... He wrote a letter to James Madison. Now, they were very close. I think Madison probably corrupted Jefferson as much as anybody. But they were very close. But in a letter in 1784, and I have a copy for anyone who would like it, uh, Jefferson says to James Madison, we must pray fervently for the death of Patrick Henry. Why? Why? That one, that one is the one that kind of, I was like, well, the beginnings were already there, I believe. But Jefferson had no intention of staying in America. He was appointed, uh, you know, uh, the Secretary of State by Washington. He wasn't even aware of that. He came back to America in 1789, hoping to settle up his financial affairs so he could go back to uh, France and continue an illicit relationship with a married woman and uh, of course uh, <laughs> you know we don't talk about that very much but uh, Stephen your thoughts sir I'm just I'm just enjoying listening to you gentlemen let me let me pass continue with that <laughs> <laughs> well thank you sir Richard any thoughts sir actually no not I don't really have a thought on uh, on this point I just like Stephen, if you want to continue, or, or maybe David. Well, we look at so many of the things, and the thing that it took me years to do, guys, looking at these source documents, was to realize that the groundwork... Now, I know there are people going to get upset again, and you know how much that troubles me, but the Constitution of 1787 was socialist. And it was because it was a highly centralized government to where the uh, final uh, arbiter of what was and was what was not legal was in the hands of the government, and not the people. It's really that simple. 
And then when the Federalists put into their judicial system the right of a judge to rule both on law and facts, that completely took the the uh, judicial system out of any control by the people because if the federal courts can rule on facts, they can overrule a jury. And they have done it on multiple occasions. Uh, Mike, so, I, 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 I have go a ahead, question buddy. if I could ask you. Please. You know, it's always uh, bothered me, you know, after America won a revolution uh, from or control of England, why did America essentially adopt the exact legal system that was set down by England? Why didn't they say, hey, we're going to make our own legal system, we're going to make some radical changes and do things differently in this country? Why do you think they accepted and, and kept the English system? Well, Dave, that is something that I'm attempting to do now with my Substack account. I'm attempting to make enough podcasts to where people can understand this. And that was, the people do not know, is the people who uh, gave themselves the name Federalist. This was not given to them by the people. They call themselves Federalists, and that was a, uh, a form of derision because they wanted to make the people think they were something they were not. Now, do we still have that or not? So the point being here is that the people who call themselves Federalists, these people that our people are just adore and think that God inspired them to do this, are totally unaware of the fact that they went kicking and screaming. And if we look at the, if we look at the first uh, Congress, the very first Congress of the colonies actually sent a petition to King George and Parliament stating they did not want independence. And that was a group uh, when Congress was controlled by those we now call Federalists. You have to understand that these people, these wealthy aristocracy in America, had become wealthy by supporting the crown and King George. And then they finally realized, as opposition to the Stamp Act and the Intolerable Acts and the Tea Act and other things began to progress, as they saw that, then they began to realize, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place here. And then at the Constitutional Convention, Edmund Randolph gave it away. Now, I mentioned this on a program yesterday, but Edmund Randolph gave this away. And he said at the Constitutional Convention, those men, and this is something most people also are unaware, is there was two Articles of Confederation. The first Articles of Confederation was written by the people we call Federalists, and it was rejected. So then another Constitution was written, another Articles of Confederation, and with the leaders like uh, Adonis Burke and uh, uh people we've never heard of anymore, Thomas Burke, Thomas Tudor Tucker, and others, with their power and their influence, they created a new Articles of Confederation. At the Constitutional Convention, Edmund Randolph said, these were all fine men who wrote that, 
But their primary concern was the rights of the people. Now, we have to get beyond that. We have to put power back in government. And the only way you can take get power like that is to take it from the people and to put it back into government. And Randolph said the greatest threat to government is the people. And that's why I've said over and over again in my classes that the Constitution of the United States was built to protect the government from the people, and it still does. How many uh, Americans, although treason has been committed multiple times in the last hundred years, how many uh, politicians have been hanged for treason? Does that help any, Dave? Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. And, you know, the, the, a corollary of this, too, of course, is why did the uh, newly formed American government accept an English-controlled central bank? Well, a great question, and that was, and this is what people do not understand, and people think, oh, the great George Washington Washington had a chance to make this country right. But let's not forget that George Washington writing to John Jay just a month in April before the convention that established the Constitution, in that letter, George Washington said to John Jay, we have a right to impose our imperial dignity and to command obedience. Now, what part of free and people are in control, does that sound like? Stephen, your comments? I, I want to pass again, sir. I've just learned more listening to you. I, I remember you saying that. I do believe that this you've proven that the Constitution we have become a monster and an empire under was illegitimate you know that's that's the last legitimate form of government that 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 was here i mean that big we the people that that's you know it, it went south then that just my opinion well richard your thoughts sir well as far as david's a question both regarding the legal system of England and, well, their financial system and, you know, private central bank. Ultimately, I mean, it is indicative of how it was, as you point out, filled with infiltration uh, all along in the founding of this nation. And, I mean, since... England already had several, well, centuries by that point, really, with internationalist infiltration. You know, they, 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 they needed to keep that same system going that it includes the lawfare, and the lawfare can assist with the financial um, machinations, for that matter. But, so, I mean, when you mention by law or by uh, fact that they can rule, uh, at first, I mean, I was thinking of it the other way around, you know, I mean, I was thinking of lawfare, you know, not not law meaning a fair, a, a truth about the way they twist it. But, I mean, when the way you refer to facts is a weaponized twisting of the facts. Regardless, I mean, it, it's the same model England had by these basically Talmudic outlines 
uh, for their control system, I suppose. Well, you know, we can go back, and my friend, uh, my friend Neil Ross brought this up the other day, and it, uh, you know, go back to what was it, 1987, when the majority of the people of California passed a law that the people's tax money would not be used on illegals, would not pay, would not buy their food, would not put their kids through school, would not pay for their housing or anything else. And as left-wing as your uh, California is out there, Dave, they voted back then, no, you can't use our tax money for these illegals that come across the border. You can't do that. One federal judge struck down the state of California. Well, that's true, Mike. And uh, also, I believe it was in 2012, uh, Californians voted against gay marriage. Uh, quite resoundingly, and that too was overturned by uh, a judge who just happened to be gay. <laughs> Not that that matters. Uh, he, a, an individual judge overturned the will of the people as well. And recently, this year, we've had the same thing happen in Missouri with the Second Amendment Protection Act. Well, here comes our music, guys. We'll be back on the flip side. Thank you, folks. Support RBN. Wise men follow him, they rose again. Wise men follow him, thank God for the renegades and the lives they lead. For ahead of their time, without the renegades, Lord knows where we'd be. Are you one of the of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs. For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plant. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste for the price of a cup of coffee. HempPaste.com slash RBN. Free shipping on orders over $50. See the banners for Hemp Paste at republicbroadcasting.org and visit HempPaste.com slash RBN. People often write to tell us what has happened for them since starting Extendivite. Allow me to read one. This product has been a godsend for my father, who suffered from a heart attack about two years ago. He was prescribed medications for his condition, which was so serious, he almost died. But he hasn't been able to afford most of the medications. After researching alternatives that were more affordable, he tried Extendivite. Since taking it, he has consistently lower blood pressure and experiences less angina. We are currently on our fifth bottle. I enthusiastically recommend this product, and I am grateful that it is available. To order, call 1-877-928-8822 or visit extendivite.com. That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Extend your life with Extendovite. 
so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pastures meats that you and your family will love. Now, we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high-quality pasture-raised meats, and even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now, I'm not talking about the bottom-of-the-barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free-range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying their low-quality products. I'm talking about truly nourishing pasture-raised meats, the kind that you'll never really find in a grocery store. Our farmers are doing things beyond organic. Our beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and raised on pastures free from chemicals and other pesticides. Our chickens are 100% pasture-raised, where they get their natural diet of grass and forage and insects. We will never settle for free range, which is actually one of the most deceptive terms in the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you've definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures, and you will really love the delicious, nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your door. Visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork. Raised the way nature intended. something I did, guys, and uh, I would uh, welcome back, folks, uh, uh, to the Republic Renegade Roundtable here on the 17th day of December in 2023. But just for the heck of it, and I would like you guys to do it, I got a few more uh, days under the sun than you three gentlemen, but uh, just today, I took from the time I was born until today, and I looked at how many years this country has been at war. And I realized that the majority of my life, this country has been at war with somebody. And not one darn one of those wars was declared according to this wonderful constitution. David, how do they get by with that? Well, that's a good question, Mike. Um, I, I would say basically by 
hook and by crook uh, by subverting, well, the foundations of our country, the Constitution, what, what there is of it, uh, because there are holes large enough to drive a truck through, uh, put there on purpose, as you've pointed out many, many times. And I think I think that's the root of the problem is that and the fact that we even have a federal government at all. Articles of Confederation, as you have taught me and many others, that was really sufficient to have a government. And having a federal government is redundant, especially when you look at all the laws and power that the states have. There's no reason to have a, a redundant and parasitical uh, apparatus on top of all that. Well, well said, Dave. And the thing I've always thought about so many times is if we still had individual states and those states, uh, the people in those states could form laws which they wanted. And many of the anti-federalists warned that even with just 13 colonies, the people were so divergent that one government was never going to fit them. All. You know. It's like, uh, you know, what was that old saying? Uh, I hope I don't get too off base here, but, uh, you know, <laughs> why do they not make uh, women's bras one side fits all? Uh, the laws are the same thing. And I hate to draw that analogy, of course, but anyway, but it is a proper analogy that we states could pass their laws, the things they wanted. And if you had a bunch of those New England states that wanted a federal bank that wanted uh, abortion, that wanted homosexuality, that wanted, you know, uh, gay marriage, that wanted all of these things. If if you were a citizen there and you didn't like it, all you had to do was move to another state. The problem was for the government was the fact that the states that wouldn't allow that would become prosperous. The states who followed the natural law not the common law but the natural law god's law the people who followed that would form their own communities and prosper and the federal government could not let anyone see that it was possible to prosper outside of their jurisdiction stephen your thoughts buddy what better proof than today the Amish follow natural law more, I guess, than than uh, the common law? Maybe that's the big difference that that they prosper, whereas uh, they're in. You know, the people would think they're backwards, but it looks like they prosper in the midst of all these shots and stuff we're getting, all of the usury and everything that we have signed up for. I don't know. Just I don't know exactly how all that works, but that just seemed like a, a perfect proof of it. Well, Stephen, I remember listening to our buddy Blackbird Nine's program yesterday, and he was talking with a gentleman, and they talked about, you know, various parts of government and how, you know, especially they went into uh, the difference with, uh, I think, with inoculations and what have you. And that became very relevant is the fact that if you lived in South Carolina and uh, South Carolina said, uh, Stephen, you're going to have to take a vaccination or you can't live here. How far is it to North Carolina? Yeah. And how, you know, that is the thing. And that was the reason also that the North could not allow the South to secede. 
because the North was controlled, even in their churches, by the transcendentalism and the Unitarians, and they had basically abolished Christianity in the North. The churches, the, the churches of, of real power in the North at that time were totalitarian, uh, you know, transcendentalism and Unitarianism, which neither one acknowledged Christ. And what other religion is it that doesn't acknowledge Christ, guys? And well, let me also, think here. <laughs> yeah, let me think. And also the other thing that we can't forget here as we pull this together is that there was it was actually brought up at the Constitutional Convention of whether there should be a central bank because these people had just lived under Robert Morris's uh uh, Bank of North America and the inflation that it had caused, 70% inflation in five years. And so the people didn't want that central bank. So the central bank was voted down at the Constitutional Convention by the Committee of the Whole. And yet, it was put back into the Constitution after Washington took office, even under the protestations of even little Jimmy Madison said no. Thomas Jefferson said no. And even Edmund Randolph, who was attorney general, said no, that's not constitutional. If you bring in that bank, it has to be voted in by the states. Washington ignored everyone and gave Hamilton the power. Now, last year, it finally came out in a book. Alexander Hamilton was Jewish. Imagine that. And he was our first Secretary of the Treasury. Now, folks, if you want to read something, this, this I would highly recommend. I'll also send this to anyone who would like it. But the good, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's so strange how these things happen. You know, this letter from Thomas Jefferson, he's resigning. He does not want to be in the government anymore. This was back when he had still had moral principles. And he said, no, I can't do this. I can't stay here. And he sent George Washington a 40, uh, I'm sorry, a 24 question letter. And he said, Mr. President, now he had a great admiration for Washington. So you have to play that in here. And so Jefferson says, why is the Secretary of Treasury allowed to go before Congress and initiate legislation? Why is Hamilton allowed to do this stuff? And he had 24 questions for George Washington. Ironically, the questions that Jefferson asked were mailed to Washington at Mount Vernon, when the government was in New York at the time, the central government. So was Hamilton running the entire government? I think he was, because shortly after that, if you track these letters, Mr. Washington sent Mr. Hamilton a letter asking him the same questions that Jefferson asked him in a letter, but he didn't tell him it was Jefferson. He told him it was George Mason. Why does the president of the United States have to ask the secretary of treasury, why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? 
And this is my contention, and I, I firmly believe it, that the majority of the United States presidents have had a Jewish handler. And it started with George Washington because Hamilton was, in fact, a Jew. Your thoughts, Richard? Well, as far as all of this uh, early push toward such a federalist control system, again, I mean, as you taught the Articles of Confederation, be uh, appropriate and, and, and plenty uh, to... Uh, align uh, sovereign, well, independent nation states under. And as far as later eras that we've been living through, I mean, the biggest selling, one of the biggest selling points, at least for big government, has always been a fear of external threats and a fear of chaos. You know, um, I mean, people when you talk about things like secession, people, you know, they're convinced that there are these bad guys in other nations that yeah, we need to be protected from, you know, by a strong federal conglomerate. And so, I mean, I don't know, would you suggest, I mean, I mean, would you say that, you know, more or less some of the same tactics were used, uh, but it seems like back then a lot of it was just straight out deception and uh, insubordination that got a lot of these things passed. Like, yes. Well, here's the thing I've asked people who have similar questions, you know, Richard, and that's a very valid question. But I've asked people who said, oh, we need a strong central government to protect us. When has this country been invaded? It was invaded twice. It was invaded in 1812 by the British again, and the South was invaded by Lincoln's Marxist administration. So... America has not been, and you know, we can uh, we talked before about Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was not part of the United States, folks, in nineteen, you know, nineteen forty-one. You know, you might need to. I, I mentioned that the other day. Well, America wasn't attacked. What about Pearl Harbor? Well, Pearl Harbor wasn't part of the United States. <laughs> and Admiral Jackson had tried his very best on multiple occasions to get. FDR to pull those forces out of Pearl Harbor because the channel wasn't deep enough. You know, there were so many different things. They didn't have enough equipment. If you read this from this uh, proposal by Robert Admiral Robert Jackson, who wanted those forces removed in early 1941, he said, we're just setting these people as targets for somebody to shoot at, Mr. President. And, of course, you know, we're not taught about that in school. So, uh, Dave, your thoughts, buddy? Well, Mike, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, didn't something important happen in 1811 before uh, the invasion uh, of uh, America in 1812? Uh, what, what was it exactly? Oh, you mean the 20-year expiration of the First National Bank? Oh, right. Yeah, that must have had – maybe that had something to do with it. And, of course, I believe the British burned down what was then the White House, not the same building, but they burned down the White House uh, in, during their invasion. Yeah, and there was one thing that always struck me as funny about that when I was uh, in Virginia and when I was in Charlottesville and that time when I spent a lot of time in the archives was the fact that in 1812, as the British came marching through Virginia – destroying everything in their sight 
they left Jefferson's mansion. They backed off, did not attack Jefferson's Monticello. Why? That's a very good question. I've always wondered. I don't have an answer, folks. I'm, I just made a uh, question there. Uh, maybe uh, our good buddy Stephen Douglas Whitener might have an idea. What do you think, Stephen? I don't have an – I'm not sure why. You know, that does – you wonder. But uh, well, it's, it's, it's like the the all the generals in that first war were all Masons. Something to do with that, maybe. I don't know. I'm just still tripping on uh, Jefferson writing a letter to Washington asking these questions for – for him, and then he's saying, "Okay, I want to ask you these questions." But it was uh, the other guy that wanted to know. You know, that just that's look at the subterfuge. Even then, it was that 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 keeps standing out in my mind. Sorry, I, back to you, sir. Oh, well, well stated, uh, Richard. Uh, your thoughts, sir? Richard, you still with us, buddy? Well, he may have had to jump off there, and we, we won't, uh, don't leave any uh, blank spaces in the conversation here. But uh, as we move forward with our group, the Republic Renegade Roundtable, uh, what would you like to pursue personally, Scorp? Well, that's a great question. Um, I thought we, we brought up two questions already, or actually three. Why did America keep the British system of law after winning a revolution? And why did they accept a British central bank? I think we have a partial answer for that, because we know that we had a Jewish infiltrator by the name of Alexander Hamilton, uh, who was pushing that very, very hard. And I think it was you, of course, have taught everyone that um, – Hamilton was basically in charge uh, during Washington's presidency, much like Colonel House with uh, President Wilson in the early 1900s. Uh, so that, and then um, I would like to pursue deeper into what the end game is uh, for America with uh, Jewish power. What is their ultimate goal for America? Hmm. Uh, very well stated, David. Uh, Stephen, where do you want to go with it from moving forward? That sounds good to me. I'd like to know more about all that and uh, what's going to happen coming forward, I think, is is something else I'd like to speculate about. Just respond to what happened and, and speculate about what might be on some at some point. But it, that um, the one thing I'd like to know more about or talk more about the uprising call it in south carolina uh with wade hampton the red shirts and when they we fought they Ooh. fought back to push back against the occupier for a brief time i'd like to hear more about that too sir all righty and uh richard are you back with us sir yes, <laughs> yes i'm sorry i'm sorry about that uh, that's no <laughs> problem richard multitasking a bit there but yeah no i i definitely uh, like the suggestions uh, from the other panelists for for where we need to uh, to continue as far as the directions and I mean certainly this idea of of needing you know a strong a centralized force from uh, ex 
external threats and or existential threats. I mean, that that is a big thing that that today most people have drilled into their heads. I mean, they um, you know, they're so afraid of bad guys in, in other nations. And so, well, that, yeah, I mean, uh, cer- certainly that's that's something that regardless of how things uh, were brought into uh, being in the early founding eras, currently, um, you know, we have to get that mindset out of the average American. Well, I wish that that was possible, sir, but I, I tell you what, I'm going to keep trying, as I know you gentlemen are, because I know yep. you, gentlemen, you gentlemen are 100% committed to rightful liberty and freedom, and that is why I feel very honored to have you three gentlemen as uh, uh, part of this roundtable. Um, is there any particular part of history... Uh, David, uh, that you would like to delve into. You mentioned there, and I don't mean to be redundant or or to ask you the same question twice, but uh, is there any part of history that really sticks in your mind and there's questions you can't answer? Well, I'm really interested uh, right now in World War I uh, and the breakup of the Ottoman Empire and sort of the precursor to, you know, the Balfour Declaration, and really what the Ottoman Empire was and why it was so important to break apart, and then all the artificial boundaries that were drawn that were almost guaranteed to produce future conflicts as part of this uh, propagation of war for future wars. Uh, and th- there's just a lot of unanswered questions about World War One. The official explanation for why World War One even started makes absolutely no sense. And I think it's just a, a very important um, uh, piece of history that has it's kind of been overshadowed by World War Two. but I'd really like to look deeper into it because there's a lot of, I think, very valuable uh, gems hidden in the dirt there. Absolutely, David. Thank you so much for even bringing that up because it had slipped past me But I wanted to tell you people something, the people listening and you gentlemen on the panel. I'm not sure if you were aware of this, but on the 22nd day of March in 1916, during the midst of the First World War, the British newspaper called the Daily Telegraph published an article falsely claiming that the Germans had murdered 700,000 Serbs in gas chambers during World War One. Uh, you see any correlation here, Stephen? Yes, sir, and that's while the war was still going on, too. You know, just three years before Versailles. This, this is in the midst. Of their, that's war propaganda, and we're lucky that it wasn't taken as fact as well. Well, it uh, certainly set a pattern, and uh, nobody seemed to really complain about it. So, And then again, if you really get into this, and I got to tell you guys, this one's tough on me because my son-in-law is German. He came to America when he was 16 years old. I'm so proud of him. He's done such a great job becoming an American citizen. And the first thing that he said he had to do was he had to be able to speak English without a German accent. And he's worked hard at that. But he has provided me with three grandchildren. And I was sitting at the table with my 13-year-old grandson Friday night. 
And he started telling me how terrible was the Holocaust. And I said, wait a minute. Are you taught that in school? Oh, yes, that's one of the primary things they're really going into. And I, I got to tell you, it kind of bothered me. I've got three wonderful grandchildren who are part German. And I don't want to see future generations blame them for something that didn't happen. Not to the magnitude that they claim. And I, I think there's a preponderance of evidence out there that proves the whole thing false. Uh David, your thoughts? We're running out of time here pretty quickly, buddy. Let's uh, get those done. Well, yeah, I think there is a preponderance of evidence. And you know, even uh, scholars like uh, Norman Finkelstein, who wrote The uh, Holocaust Industry, talks about this, how the, the claims are greatly exaggerated and used as a political weapon and sort of a get-out-of-jail card uh, for Zionists uh, all, all the way till today. So that, that's another deep rabbit hole. Uh, and uh, the the use of guilt to make the German people feel shameful uh, is is terrible, and it's an ongoing process. It needs to come to an end because um, it's a giant lie, and so much of the reality of the 20th century has been built upon that falsehood. Well, gentlemen, here comes the music. David, Stephen, Richard. I can't thank you, gentlemen, enough. You have honored me this day to bring forth actual truth instead of profanity to the people of Republic Broadcasting Network. And people, please support them. The people deserve more than profanity. They, they deserve the truth. And we're going to try to make sure we get that to them. So thank you, people. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate your work. Richard, you were fantastic. David, you were just the same old Scorpio. Very good. And Stephen, I don't care what Wendy says about you. I still like you. All right, sir. Thanks for including me. All right. Everyone, thank you for joining us. Good night, everyone, and God bless. And every hole that tore my soul that day I still carry them with me By sheer determination and God's grace I remain But if it helps you sleep You can picture me Tahibo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit drinksupertea.com. The first word is drink, spelled D-R-I-N-K, then the word super, then the word tea. The complete website is drinksupertea.com. Or call us at 818-965-9113, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-965-9113. DrinkSuperTea.com. This is RBN.
The Republic Broadcasting Network.